This is Negotiate X Podcast, show number 77, part B. You're listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the NegotiateX podcast. We are continuing our conversation with Don Rossmore, a management and organizational consultant. If you haven't already checked out part A of this show, be sure to do that first. Let's jump into the conversation with Don. The students that I teach in some of my co courses on negotiation are sometimes really resistant to kind of the listening and inquiring advice that you've, you've been giving um, because there's this fear that if I do too much of that, I'm, it's going to come at the cost of advocating my own perspective. Um, so I'm curious here with with what you've shared around good listening, good inquiry, how do you balance those things with what we would call maybe productive advocacy um, as we're engaging with somebody else? And do you have any examples? It turns out, and this requires experimentation, that the more we listen and the less we talk to ourselves when somebody else is talking, you need to trust yourself that the right answer will come up. And that's what we don't do. We don't trust ourselves to spontaneously come up with the right answer. So then we rehearse. But it turns out the quieter we are when we listen, the more on point our response is when we talk. And it takes practicing this to discover it. And so, Aram, let me ask you, when you're in conversation with somebody and you're talking to yourself, what's the point of the conversation? Which one? The one going on inside my head or the one that I'm having with you? Uh, the one that you're having with me. Well, I think I'm minimizing the point of this conversation with you if I'm really focused on this one inside my head. I guess what I try to do with, and, and, and I would love to know kind of, how you would fine tune this is I try to be aware that I'm having this conversation inside my own head and I try to just silence it, you know, kind of through breathing or something else. And I just, just listen to, to learn, to understand, to get you. And then I'm going to have to use a pause because I don't know what my response is going to be. There's going to have to be a pause after I, after I've listened to you. So pauses are wonderful. Silence really enriches the talk. And breathing is very useful. So a breath in which the inhale is longer than the exhale excites the nervous system. A breath in which the exhale is longer than the inhale calms and quiets the nervous system. So I spent 30 years every day 
sitting and facing an analog clock and controlling my breath by the second hand. I would inhale for 10 seconds and exhale for 20 seconds. And I did it long enough that my wife says that even when I'm sleeping, my exhale is longer than my inhale. So it's a breath with an exhale longer than the inhale that really helps to quiet the internal voices. Since I think I can walk and talk at the same time, I think I can breathe and listen at the same time, which is I, I'm, I'm picking up on a cue here, which is that it would be some good advice rather than trying to manage two conversations, my internal voice and, and the conversation we're having at the same time. That's not going to be very effective. Yes. Yes. And um, quieting the internal voices reduces emotional stress. So corporate communications take many forms, emails, memos, et cetera. A common place where things get discussed is during meetings, and there's probably no one listening who hasn't been part of a meeting that they felt that was just an absolute waste of their time. How do you approach meetings to ensure they don't just achieve a purpose, but also strengthen connection? between the participants? A wonderful question. Make sure that the agenda items are important to the people present. Make sure they're allocated enough time. Almost every meeting has more agenda items than get addressed or can get addressed. Make sure the people are summarizing. Make sure the people are inquiring. Interrupt any emotionally negative voice as soon as possible. Interrupt statements that are judgmental. But mostly, focus on summarizing and listening and inquiring. You know, in your book, you talk about these, this idea of interrupting interruptions. And I feel that interruptions are fairly common, a common tendency, uh, especially in meetings as we've had this conversation now and processing, it's kind of the outward. I have this internal voice that's not, not being managed. And this is now the interruption is the kind of it's coming out because I really wasn't listening anyways. Can you talk a little bit about this idea of interrupting interruptions, why interruptions in general are problematic and, and how this idea can, can help us have more productive meetings? Well, interruptions are rude, disrespectful, it tilts the balance of power to the interrupters. And an interruption often changes what's being talked about. And it's interesting. Every group starts off interrupting that I work with. And I start interrupting interruptions right away. And then I encourage everybody else to interrupt interruptions. And they go away fairly quickly once this starts. What does this interrupting interruption sound like? You just interrupted Nolan. <laughs> you didn't, but that's how it goes. And so you're just shedding light on it. And I know we're about ready to talk about defensiveness. So I, I as the interrupter, who probably felt very justified in my interruption because my interruption was going to be, was brilliant, was going to get us back on track. What Nolan was <laughs> saying was, was silly anyways, didn't need to be. So is there a fallout with, with what I say, Don, how dare you interrupt me? No one's ever said that. Okay. No one's ever said that. I did this training group for four years. We met 20 days a year. And a guy came in in the uh, second year 
And he interrupted constantly, and I kept interrupting his interruptions, and he didn't stop. <laughs> and I kicked him out of the group. How long did this go on? This went on a year, so about 20 meetings. That's the only time. Nobody has said, what are you doing? Everybody accepts my interrupting their interruptions. <laughs> you know, I come to a group with a, a huge amount of moral authority at this point. Do we also know, like, is there something like when I, I'm not actually blind to the fact that I interrupted Nolan. So when you hold me accountable, right, because you didn't say it in a jerky way, right? You, you just, you just named what had happened. So are you actually helping me, I guess, in my process management of the meeting, by just, by just shedding some light on, you know, on what I'm doing here. You just um, introduced a really important issue, which is voice. So when I started out, I sounded harsh and judgmental. And in fact, one of my favorite project was this um, integration of the three systems labs. And the guy who is heading it up is a wonderful human being. First rate character, great sense of humor, really smart. But I was still judgmental in my tone of voice. And I talked to him five years after he retired. And he said, I was really glad I worked with you. And I was really glad I never had to work with you again. <laughs> and it was tone of voice. And um, a couple of years ago, I was talking to a woman rabbi who's really smart, really sensitive. And I was talking to her like I'm talking to you. And she said, I'll bet you can get away with murder with what you say to people. <laughs> and it's the tone of voice. We've been talking about defensiveness earlier. And in your book, you label it an insidious scourge for teams. How do you define defensiveness? What are some of the symptoms that people should look for in their teams? And when have you seen it impact team productivity? Every team I've ever worked with, no matter how good they were, their defensiveness put a ceiling on their performance. <laughs> so what is defensiveness? It's producing issues that need to be managed better that are systematically avoided. It's acting in ways that are different from plan that usually are hidden. It's avoiding conflict. So there are all sorts of issues that don't get addressed systematically. The boss's indecisiveness, the boss's abusiveness, somebody's lack of performance. In my first consulting job outside of Hughes Aircraft Company, which was with a data storage unit, which was VC funded, which ended up being the uh, largest IPO in history to that date, they had a chief marketing officer who was an alcoholic. And the people in the marketing department said, if you want a straight answer, you got to get to them before 10 o'clock. And they called him the black hole of Calcutta because once you put something on his desk, it disappeared forever. And two quarters after their product launch, they still didn't have a marketing plan. And nobody was talking about this. Everybody was talking to me about it and nobody was talking to anybody else. So I had a meeting and I put it on the table. And the night before the meeting, I couldn't sleep. I was so anxious about this. And I put on my dress shirt and I drove to their place, which was 15 minutes away. And by the time I got there, I had huge sweat rings under my arms. And I sit down and I put this on the table and everybody expressed relief. Except Seema. Yes. <laughs> Who insisted 
that there were at least five prospects within the five yard line. So I suggested that the other guys go out into the field and see for themselves. And they discovered nobody was past the 50 yard line. And then that helped them make a decision. You know, in your book, one way that you discuss managing defensiveness is around what what you call um, a two column case. And I know in your book, you describe uh, how you've used it in practice with senior independent consultants in Silicon Valley. Could you share a bit with our listeners just what this process or methodology is and how it's been helpful in achieving behavioral change? So a two-column case has two columns. One is the uh, what's said publicly that everybody can hear, and the other is what you're saying privately to yourself. And the first time, and usually the third or fourth time, that somebody writes a two-column case, all of the important stuff is in the private thoughts and feelings, Mm. not in the public So a very early case, there was an engineering supervisor. This is before computers, so engineers were doing drawings. (laughs) And um, this engineering supervisor had one guy who did fabulous drawings, but he did half as many as anybody else. He was on the phone much of the day on personal calls, or he was flirting with uh, secretaries at the water cooler. And I asked the supervisor, have you talked to him about this? And he said, yes. And I said, Say it to me like you said it to him. And he said, John, you have to improve your citizenship. (laughs) And I had written down everything he had said about, and I said, what if you said that? And he said, oh, I couldn't say that. He said, that would be impolite. It would make him feel bad. There's defensiveness right there. And then I said, so you have a dilemma. If you tell him what he needs to know, so he can improve his performance and avoid being fired, you have to be rude. To avoid being rude, you can't tell him what he needs to know so he can keep his job. Right. Don, that, that's, that's fascinating. What's, that sounds like you're kind of caught in a catch-22 there. How do you navigate the way out of that when saying something's going to be rude, but saying what he was saying or like is really saying nothing? Well, I articulated his dilemma for him. I let him sit with it. A couple days later, he came back and he said, I think I have to tell him. And so we role played it. And it took him about eight role plays before he got the words right. My favorite example of this is um, one of my favorite clients. This is an aside, but I I love this part of it. This woman and I, we talked on the phone for 18 months before we met. And uh, we met in her office up in Silicon Valley in San Jose. And I was sitting in a conference room that had glass walls waiting for her. And I could see her walking towards me. And I could see that as soon as she put her eyes on me, she was disappointed in what I looked like. She was, she's a very attractive woman and she's always dressed to the nines. And there I am dressed like this. <laughs> and uh, I'm a yogi, but I'm a fat yogi, not a thin yogi. <laughs> so anyway, so, uh, and she, had, uh, three months later, I had the courage to say uh, to her, I, it looked like you were disappointed in what I looked like. And she said, you're right. <laughs> and, um, and we worked together for 20 years. So she sent me an email 
an email stream and she said, what do I do about this? And I said, you need to apologize. And it took her at least five drafts before she got the words right. And then it took us role-playing it for 90 minutes before she got the voice right. So there's words and there's voice. There's also face. When difficult conversations need to happen on a team, that can be frightening or awkward thing to do. What preparation is needed to show up and have the most productive discussion possible in these situations? Well, there's, there's words. You have to be clear about what you want to say. You have to write the words down so somebody else can say those are the right words or those are the wrong words. Then you have to uh, role play so you get the voice right. It's really interesting because the first level of resistance to saying something that needs to be said is getting the words right. And the normal defensive response to getting the words right is to be ambiguous. And then when you go to role play, usually we come to the situation with too much tension and stress. So the voice emits from the listener anxiety. So it's my practice, the harder the thing I have to say, the softer the voice I use. But the preparing is imagining what you need to say, writing it down, imagining what things the other person's going to say that could trigger your defensiveness, and then figure out how you want to respond to that, and make sure that you're aware of the body that you were in when you imagined receiving the thing you didn't want to hear and then relaxing out of that. We want to be as relaxed as we can possibly be for these difficult conversations. I really appreciate this kind of two-sided approach that you've taken. So much of it starts with how I show up, my own breathing, my own practice, my own self-awareness. And then you also just talked about kind of this creating a safe place, reducing anxiety for our listeners, right? For our audience. Um, you know, as you think about team communication and, and how do you improve it, you know, how important is it to build trust and demonstrate compassion? And how does one actually do that effectively? To act compassionately, there's a, a, an American Buddhist named Sharon Salzberg who has this fabulous definition of compassion. And it's in a book called Loving Kindness. Her definition of compassion is to take right action with all necessary effort while responding to suffering and injustice with empathy. So what I have my clients do as part of the preparation of giving critical feedback is once they are clear about what they have to say to the person that's critical, they put themselves in the other person's place and imagine receiving those words. And it's in the body that you imagine receiving those words in that you want to take to the conversation itself. That's the empathic body. I just love that definition. I'm going to have to look this book up, Love and Kindness. And I love how you, to put myself in their shoes, kind of what does it sound like to hear me? That's a bit of a mindset shift. Don, virtual teams and meetings are, are going to be here to stay. So 
What advice do you offer to organizations to remain successful and practice the concepts you've been discussing, even in the virtual world? I've worked with more than 10 virtual companies at this point. One key is you have to get together regularly, at least once a quarter. And you have to spend work time and social time together. Everybody needs to get their smell on each other. So that's one thing. Um, the other is uh, follow the instructions in my book. And a key is for each individual to remove all distractions, have no other screens available, have nothing else you're looking at, turn your phone off and focus. And part of focusing is attend to your body. And as soon as you're feeling uncomfortable, change your posture. And you need to stretch every so often. Thinking, emotions, the musculoskeletal structure, and the autonomic nervous system are tightly coupled. You change any one of them, and it changes all of them. And as soon as we have stress in our body, and we put up with it, and it builds more stress, we're turning up the volume of the voices inside our head. It makes it harder to be present and pay attention. But Don, it's amazing to me how many companies that Nolan and I do virtual programs with, where there seems to be an accepted culture of we don't turn on the video. And so we'll be the only two with video on. We'll invite them to join us there. Occasionally they will. Somebody might come off mute, turn video on or something. And, and sometimes they'll go they'll turn it on when they get into a breakout room or something. What are your thoughts about that as a kind of a cultural practice? What does it indicate about that team? At one level, I don't know. It would be useful to ask people why they weren't turning on their video, what they were concerned would happen if they did turn on their video. As you were talking, I thought to myself, I wouldn't work under those conditions. But, you know, when I started my career, I was compromising with my own values and principles all the time just to get work and to keep it. And so it's a hard place to be. I have never encountered that, but uh, the context under which I work is I'm always working with the team and I'm working in their meetings. I'm not calling extra meetings for myself. I'm in their staff meetings. I'm in their planning meetings. I'm in their project meetings. So I would do a bunch of inquiry with people who were not turning on their video, and I'd really explore with them what bad things would happen if they turned it on. It could be that they're doing other things and they don't want to be seen doing other things. I often get the feeling that they're not fully engaged. So it goes back to the listening piece, probably goes back to multiple screens and, and other things. So, Don, as we get ready to wrap up, what final thoughts would you like to leave with listeners who are truly committed to becoming master communicators? Uh, before I do that, I want to challenge the two of you yeah. to figure out how to be sufficiently compelling in these trainings that you do that people would want to turn their screens on. Yeah, Aaron, you got to do better. <laughs> so we're all defensive. It's normal. It's painful to discover how we're defensive. There is enormous payback in sticking with the discomfort so you can see yourself until you own your defensiveness. I think of that as walking all the way through the fire. Once 
you own your defensiveness, you'll find the motivation to replace it with something. And the replacing it brings enormous self-satisfaction and brings an increasing satisfaction and gratification in terms of relationships. Don, that's beautiful. And I want to say thank you for how you turned that. The way I phrased the initial question certainly indicated or suggested some blame without ownership on my part. Thank you for the challenge. And again, a, a second challenge accepted from this episode. So thank you. You're welcome. You guys are great. It's really nice doing this with you. And if you wanted, I'm happy to talk to you about what you do. No charge. <laughs> Thanks. Well, thank you, Don, for joining us today. I'd like to turn it over to Aaron for any final thoughts and closing comments. I'll just echo Nolan's appreciation, Don. Thanks for taking the time. Very insightful. I really do suggest people pick up your book, find it as a handbook. I like that you you say, hey, listen, it's not a book you read all the way through. It's a guidebook. It's a handbook. Go to where you're, you need help. It really aligns well with the with the advice you've given us and a few challenges that we're going to take and, and, and put into practice. But practicing things to make them a habit is really the way we overcome defensiveness or at least keep it in check. Thanks. We're going to walk away more effective uh, because of this conversation day. Well, that is it for us on today's episode. If you could please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.